0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Revolutionary. The tail end of 1 Kings through the first little bit of 2 Kings reads like an epic drama and ought to have a crescendoing musical score behind it. So buckle your seatbelt for an incredible Old Testament tale which foreshadows the New Testament reality of our Lord who is soon to come to judge the quick and the dead please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy,
1: The revolutionary. Isn't that exciting? I had some different options. One of the ones that I passed on at the very end, just because it just sounded a little too intimidating, was the furious revolutionary. And so I passed on it, just so you know. But this is the revolutionary, and I'm going to go through what a revolutionary is, what a revolution is, so you can have your minds wrapped around this, but whenever I start with a title like this, one thing you can know is my messages are not about men, they're about, well, unless you just want to say Jesus is a man. He is, but he's God. Every message pertains to Jesus Christ, and the revolutionary in this message is Jesus. Jesus. And most of us have never thought of him being a revolutionary, and so I want to sort of unpack the concept here. But this is a very, very powerful message that was a very difficult one for me to prepare. I feel like I needed three weeks for this particular message. I am going through, I don't know what it is, around 18 chapters of the Bible and trying to put it into a sermon. It's very difficult, but God is the one. Moving through history at such a fast clip, and then he slows down right at this exact juncture. And for 18 chapters, he covers very little territory in history, but he does it at a great depth. And he could basically say to us, did you notice that I slowed down? I mean, one of the next lines is, and then, you know, this man died, and then 28 years later, this one became king. It's like skips over massive periods. This is one little gap of time, and God says, halt Focus, do you see? And so we're going to halt and focus and hopefully see today. Revolution, it comes from the Latin, revolutuo, a turnaround. Isn't that interesting? It means to turn around. What words should that immediately hearken into your mind as a Christian? So it's an impassioned and oft violent disposing of one governmental leadership in exchange for a new one. And I want to emphasize that it's impassioned and it's oft violent. When there is a revolution, it's oftentimes with bloodshed. It's a very, very serious thing. And it's very impassioned. And all you need to do is think of the French Revolution, the American Revolution. These are big-time events in history. There's other kinds of revolutions. You, know, you could call the Industrial Revolution, no bloodshed in that. However, it means a complete turnaround, a change, a whole alteration. So the revolutionary, what's a revolutionary? Well, he's a socio-political leader empowered to dispose of one government and bring about a new leadership, a new power, and a new authority. There is a governmental system in place, and this revolutionary comes in and disposes of the previous government, The previous leadership, the previous power, the previous authority, and he establishes a new one. Can you think of a better description of Jesus Christ? He's the revolutionary. The four key ingredients to revolution. The first is discontent, and I'll go through these in just a second. The second is conviction. The third is repentance. And the fourth is judgment. This message is going to get very serious very quickly. Discontent. When there is a healthy revolution, I'm going to go through revolution from two angles. For instance, there's a judgment day that is coming, and there's two angles on that judgment. Do you remember Matthew 25? Jesus separates sheep from goats. And depending on which side of that you are, depends on if that's a happy day for you. And the same is with revolution. Depending on which side of the revolution you fall defines if it's a good revolution or a bad one. Because someone's going down. If you associate with the old regime that's being overcome, bye bye. However, if you are behind the new leader, if you come in his train, if you come in his strength, well, this is a great day. So what you see is it starts out with discontent. What's funny is this is the history of revolution. Discontent. There's a stirring. I don't like this. There's a bickering. There's a gnawing at the soul. Something isn't right. However, I want us to take this not in, the, in France and in America where there has been revolution. But I want us to take this in our soul. The soul revolution starts with a discontent. and You can think about what brought many of you to Ellerslie in the first place. Something's not right. And there's a gnawing at your soul. It's a discontent. However, you don't quite know what it is that is eating away at you. You just know that there has to be something better, something more. Conviction. This is a very, very important aspect of the formation of revolution. And that is that there really is a conviction of soul. And you begin to realize that something is wrong. And you begin to have words for it. You begin to say, this is what is wrong. You begin to see it. Because God, in the process of bringing about revolution, is bringing truth to bear. He is preaching to our souls, and he's saying, do you see? You side with this old man, you die. And we begin to realize we're siding with the old man. We're siding with the old regime. And we are under judgment. Judgment is coming, is the great, famous word of Scripture. Judgment is coming, but what goes with that statement? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a discontent. And then comes the conviction, but that conviction comes with a clear message, and you see it getting bigger and bigger. Repent, because of what? Judgment is coming. The revolutionary is on the march. He is coming to claim his territory, and if you side with the old regime, you die. Make your choice right now. The revolutionary is on his way. And what do you say? How can I get on the side of the revolutionary? The cry of the revolutionary, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to give you an expanded Eric rendition of this. Repent, oh you discontented and convicted souls, for judgment is at hand. There is a revolution. The cross was that revolution. The kingdom of heaven is the new order. It's the new authority. It's the new leadership. God has established his kingdom. Now what's interesting is some of you could say, well, he sure doesn't seem to be taking control like I would expect a revolutionary to take. The kingdom of heaven is a very, very unique form of a revolution because that which is accomplished is accomplished, but it's not yet visible in the full manifestation here on earth. You see, there's two judgments. There is a judgment that took place at the cross and is still taking place on this earth, and I'll explain that. And there's a coming judgment. And that coming judgment is a very, very, very serious one. Judgment. I liked this definition, and so I stuck it in there. A remarkable punishment. It's not just a punishment. It's a remarkable punishment. The type of thing that causes everyone to just stand back in awe, like, whoa, did that just happen? It's a remarkable punishment, an extraordinary calamity inflicted by God on sinners. So there's other forms of judgment, like there could be a judge with a gavel in a courtroom here in America, and he goes, and he could bring judgment. That's not the judgment we're talking about. That's a form of judgment, yes. This is not the judgment that the Bible is referring to in the context of the scriptures I'm going to be reading. This is talking about God's judgment. His final judgment. He is going to bring the gavel down and it's going to be a remarkable punishment. It is going to be an extraordinary calamity for anyone that defies the revolutionary. For the Father judges no man. Isn't that an interesting statement? Father God, the Almighty judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the revolutionary. Under the sun. You see, there is one who is coming who is going to bring judgment. He is going to bring a remarkable punishment. I know, isn't it strange? We're talking about lovable Jesus. We're talking about gentle, mild, lamb like Jesus. (laughs) And he's so soft and gentle and merciful and kind. Well, yeah, to those who are humble. But to those who are obstinate, to those who rebel, to those who stand against his rightful claim to their lives, he's not going to come as meek and mild, Jesus. He's going to come in fiery judgment. He is going to come and bring remarkable punishment, extraordinary calamity. That's why this message was somewhat difficult to put together. I gulped quite a few times. A few years ago, I gave a message uh, about hell. Yeah, ranked up there with the message I'm about to give you here. The first judgment. What I describe for the first judgment is the body of Christ. This is going to seem a little strange at first. When Jesus came, He says, "I did not come to judge the world, but to save it." And yet, when Jesus came, did you know that He did come to judge? He did, but He wasn't judging us. He came to judge sin, the devil, death, darkness. He brought judgment. And where was that judgment brought? It was brought on the cross. You know that the wrath of God was poured out? Judgment came. It was a remarkable punishment. It was an extreme calamity. And where did it come? It landed square on the body of Christ of all places. What a strange place for judgment to fall. You see, there's two judgments. There is an initial judgment of sin, of darkness, and death. And for those of us that enter into Christ, that judgment is satiated in the person of Christ. And it will not fall on us again. It is satisfied. It is atoned for. There is a propitiation, a satisfaction, an offering for sin. And in that same judgment, sin is judged. The devil is judged. Darkness is judged. Death is destroyed. The head of the serpent is crushed. It was a remarkable punishment. And so there is a judgment, and it still pervades today. You see, the cross is a work of judgment. I know the cross is a celebratory element to us, but it's also a symbol of something. It is a symbol of judgment. And when we enter into that work of the cross, there is a judgment that begins in the body of Christ. It begins in the house of God. There is an initial judgment that is taking place. And if you allow that judgment to work full course through you, you come to the cross and you allow that judgment into your life, it saves you. If you refuse that judgment, then you are being set aside for a next judgment. And that judgment will not go the same way as the first. The first is meant to save you if you approach it properly. The second one will utterly destroy you. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? When judgment comes to the house of God, so the cross, the tomb, the empty tomb, the risen Savior the exalted Savior, the outpoured Spirit. The Spirit of God is moving in the midst of the church. There is an awakening in Israel. The body of Christ is beginning to gel. It's amazing, but God begins to inhabit the bodies of believers. He begins to move in and through this earth. There's a great great and mighty work. Before the cross, it was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A judgment is coming, and a judgment did come. The work of the cross. But there still is another judgment to come. And God is beginning to purify. There's a judgment that is beginning in the house of God. And he is purifying, sanctifying the work of the believer. He's beginning to purify, purge out anything that does not belong. Any errant thoughts. Any wrong motive. Anything of darkness. It all is judged. He's coming in with a cord. Into the temple. And he's turning over money changers tables. He's saying, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. How dare you use it for any other purpose. Judgment has come to the house of God. In the person of Jesus Christ. He has come to stake claim to the temple. He purchased it with his blood. It belongs to him. Let him come in and bring judgment. Now, I'll explain this in a different way. I want you to tremble a little at first. Ananias and Sapphira, not the story that many of us really want to focus on, but it's important. Acts 5, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold the possession and kept back part of the price. So from what our understanding is, they had a piece of property and they sold it. Let's say they sold it for $1,000. I know it was probably worth a lot more than that, but let's say for $1,000. And they wanted the body of Christ to think highly of them. So they somehow made it appear as if they sold it, let's say, for 800. And that they gave all. And yet they kept back 200 of it for themselves. And you could say, what's the big deal? The big deal is that they presented it as if they gave all. When in actuality, they didn't. You could say, well, what's the big deal? I do that all the time. Well, that's why this story is important. Judgment begins in the house of God. So, but a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down. Even as I'm reading this, I'm trembling. this This is big. This is serious. Because we oftentimes look at the new covenant as being the safety zone. It's like, well, I can live any way I want. Now I'm under grace. If you truly are under grace, that means God, by his grace, is going to purge you. Of everything that doesn't belong. You want to understand grace, that's grace. It's going to rescue you from the second judgment. Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. He died. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yeah, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at thy door, and and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. She died. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. Listen to this line. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. Can you understand why great fear would come upon the church? God means business. Not in my house. We don't behave that way in my house. Are you truly a habitation for the Spirit of God Almighty? If you are, do you understand that you bear... The reputation of God on this earth. Let the first judgment have its way. Trembling before his holiness. God is jealous, it says in Nahum, and the Lord revenges. This isn't one of these scriptures that very few of us are going to stick up on our refrigerator. The Lord revenges and is furious. By the way, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A lot of us have this notion that Jesus Christ is an upgrade to God in the Old Testament. That God was mean in the Old Testament, and then he got nice in the the New Testament. He sort of learned from Jesus, and he's like, you know what? I should take some cues from you, Jesus. You're just such a nice guy. I've been so mean all these years. (laughs) God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know what is revealed of him in the New Testament? That he's a God of all grace? Yes. That he's love? Yes. That he's mercy? He's kind? Yes. He's always been that. However, we were cut off from it. Because of our sin, we were removed from grace. We fell from grace. Therefore, the life of God, the tree of life, was not made available to us. We were cut off from it. But what has Jesus done? He's made a way back unto the fullness of the Father. That we can have access to grace once again. Grace has always been there. We were cut off from it. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, for making a way. Back unto those mercies. Back unto that kindness. But God is jealous, and by the way, he still is today. And the Lord revenges, by the way, he still does today. The Lord revenges and is furious. Mm -hmm. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. It's okay to gulp. You just don't want to be one of his adversaries. You don't want to be the devil, sin, darkness, the flesh, death. You don't want to be those. They're going to come under judgment. And if you throw in your lot with them and say, you know, I sort of like them. I'm going to buddy up with the flesh. You better start gulping. Because God has committed himself to work furiously and vengefully against his adversaries. And those are the declared enemies of God in the universe. Don't side with them. Repent. Get away from them. Turn away. Throw off that husk of an old life. Get away from it. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. I'm going to read that again just because it's a weighty line. The Lord will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He acquits the righteous. He can't acquit the wicked, which means legally justify. He cannot let them go from their crimes. He cannot let the wicked be acquitted. And you can say, well, I have no hope then. You do have a hope. Has anyone ever told you about the cross of Jesus Christ? You know what is made available to you? Righteousness. A righteousness that is not your own. And when you clothe yourself in that righteousness, through faith in Christ, he wraps you with his righteousness. And as a result, you are no longer counted as the wicked. You're counted as the righteous. And as a result, you are acquitted by the work of his shed blood. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God." So one of the things we see throughout the Bible is this concept of a day. There is a judgment day. There is a throne. and It is a great white throne, which means it is spotless and without purity. When you approach that throne, the only way to be acquitted by that throne is to be like the one on that throne. And it's great and white. And we tend to be very small and black. Woe is us. We don't have much hope unless we hear the gospel. Repent, oh you discontented and convicted. Repent, for judgment is at hand. You see, something else is needed in that story. Revolution needs the way in which to turn yourself unto the revolutionary and hop into his chariot. He is coming with a furious chariot and he will trample on all that dare side against him. And so here we are. We hear the rumblings of the chariot wheels. We hear the coming judgment. We feel the discontent. We know something is wrong, and then we are convicted because we are on the side of evil. We are standing with the wicked, and we hear the chariot wheels coming. What would you do to get into that chariot instead of be trampled by it? Well, I would say I would do anything. I would give up everything. Well, what if it means you have to leave hearth and home? What if it means you have to say goodbye to your previous life? Hey, why does that matter? I'm gonna be trampled under if I don't. I'm guilty. How can we get into that chariot? You see, it says, But after thy hardness and impenitent hearts, what is God going to judge? Where will the wrath of God fall? On hardness and impenitence, on pride and arrogance. Those that will not submit, those that will not repent, those are the ones that says that there is wrath being treasured up against that day. It is being treasured up. It's being stored up. The wrath is being built. Gulp. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Listen to this. And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. In other words, he's good at these things. He's really good. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that he can deliver the godly out of temptations. But he can do it. He's able, and he's also able, to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment. The judgment seat. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Did you just hear that correctly? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Great white throne. You will be there someday. You will. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's a different scripture. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Do you hear the chariot wheels? He is driving it with fury, and it is great terror. The judgment of the Lord is coming. Do you feel the earth quaking? Do you sense the impending doom that is coming upon all that will dare side against God? It will come. And we are all being set aside for such a day. There will be a judgment and every single one of us will be held accountable for what we have done in this body. Whether good or bad, we will be held accountable for it. Mm. Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So there's a day of the Lord's anger. There is a day of the Lord's fury. There is a day of wrath. There is a day of judgment. It has all sorts of different names in Scripture. But here it's called the day of the Lord's anger. God is coming. His chariot wheels are on the move. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Maybe. If you know the gospel, you don't tremble before the chariot wheels. You tremble at the awesome power of your God who has come and he has hid you in himself. So that when you stand on that day of judgment, you don't stand in your own merit, you don't stand in your own works, you don't stand in your own whiteness, which by the way is not white and attempt to appease God on such a day, and say, but look how good of a life I had. No, you are hid in Christ Jesus. And you stand in Christ before that day of judgment. Christ has already absorbed that wrath. There is no more to be had. He has satiated the penalty. Justice has been served. And you have been washed whiter than snow. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Most of us are, you know, as we're going through this message, there's a little trembling. But how, how many of you have ever thought of having boldness in the day of judgment? I'm looking forward to the day of judgment. What? Yeah, when the chariot wheels come, there's nothing better because I'm with the revolutionary. I'm on his side. You see, judgments can turn out two different ways for you. I don't know... I'll go through this, but here's the chariot, and it's going, vroom, 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 moving along, and here's the wicked. What's it going to trample under its wheels? Well, the wicked. But what if you are behind the chariot or in the chariot? You know, are, are you as concerned? It's a different orientation towards the same event. Same event, but you do not fear it because you are with the one who is bringing the judgment. You are in him. So it says, Here in, is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Well, where he goes, I go. And so where he is, I am. And if he is coming to bring judgment, I'm with him. I'm not against him. I'm with him. The great white throne. A fiery stream issued and came forth be- from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I'm going to follow up on these books. But this great white throne, this day of judgment, this day of wrath, this day of the Lord's fury, there is a throne, and it is great and white. And in this day, when we are standing before this throne, there are books opened. And depending on what is in those books defines a lot in regards to you and me. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Revelation 20. So that was the book of Daniel. Now we go all the way to Revelation 20 and we see the exact same scene. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Oh. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. There's those books again. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I don't know about you, but I'm sort of interested in having my name written in this book of life. The open books... We'll call them the writings of God. This is a very unique little study here. I'm going to break this down into two books. It says the books were opened, and then there was another book opened. So there's these books. And out of these books, there is judgment. What are those books? It's the law of God. It's the declarations. The annunciations of righteousness. And every single one of us is measured against that. How are you doing? Measured against the perfect, white, hot righteousness of God Almighty. It says it's only those whose names were written in the next book that were not thrown into the lake of fire. That means every single one of us is found guilty at the bar of judgment. Those first books that are opened are eternal books. The law is the law of God. The righteousness of God doesn't alter. It doesn't show favoritism. We are all judged before that same throne. And we're all found wanting. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only thing that saves you from that lake of fire is this next book. You see, so let's talk about The books, the first books that are opened by which we are judged. The old, we'll call it the Law and the Prophets. And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony. Books, tables of stone written with the finger of God. These are an everlasting testimony. These are a covenant. These are a statement from God written by his very finger. A book written by God. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, it actually refers to this as the book of Moses. This is written as a testimony. It is written. It is the basis of canon. It is the established testimony. And you could say, for or against us. It is established truth. And it says, you keep my law, and this blessing will follow you. You keep it perfectly. You walk in righteousness, and this is what you will receive. However, if you violate my law, these are the curses that will come upon you. It's clearly spelled out. However, what does it say in the New Testament? the law is a schoolmaster, which leads us to Christ. We need something else. What must we do to be saved? Because when those books are open, I'm going to be judged, and I can't stand before that day. I have nothing in me to make an appeal with. I have no works of my own that I can boast in. Woe is me. Help! Help! I need a Savior. The second book, the new. This is a living book, by the way. This isn't just some archaic text. To call Jesus a book, I know sounds funny, but we also call him bread. We call him all sorts of things. He's a book. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the testimony of God, the covenant of God, the writing of God, his very finger writing out a life. He's a living epistle. And that is the book. And unless you're found in that book of life and your name is written there, you will be cast into the lake of fire. The new, the life of Jesus, the new covenant in his blood. We have an old covenant, And we have a new covenant. And unless you are found in that new covenant, in that life, and that life is His blood, it's the book of life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, written by the very finger of God, previously on tablets of stone, is now dawning the human life. It is now living, blood coursing through it. It speaks, it hears, it listens, it reaches out, it washes feet. It's living, it's moving. That is the book of life. The book of life, in which when you are found written in it, you will have eternal life. And the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is not a diminishment of the old covenant. The old covenant boasts the nature of God. It boasts the power of God. It boasts the perfection of God, the holiness of God. But it is meant as a tool, as a tutor unto our souls, unto a greater, more magnificent covenant. A greater book. The first book only can judge you and find you wanting. The first book can only clarify your eternal destiny in rebellion against the Most High God that you deserve damnation. The first book can't save you. Moses, the first book could not take the people into the land of promise. He could only bring them to the edge, and he could point. It was Joshua, Yeshua, the same name for Jesus. He was the only one that could lead them into that land of promise, the land flown with milk and honey. The greater testament, the greater book, not written in stone but in a human body. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. This is the description of the church of Jesus Christ. We are to be living epistles. The word of God is meant to be made manifest in our very life. Well, how much more Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh? He is a living book. He is the book of life. And on that judgment day, when the books are opened, what matters It's who is found in that second book. Who is found in the book known as life? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what he says. I am the life. Unless you eat of my body and drink my blood, you have no life. He is the life. He is the living water. He is everything that we must have in order to live. This is how Genesis starts. Now, I know there's the creation of the heavens and the earth, but then when it gets down to business and starts the tale of history, this is what it says This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Now, just think about this. For those of you that have hung around Ellerslie for a long time, you know we are born in Adam, and in Adam we will die. Adam is under judgment. Adam is the old man. The classic statement of you your dad, you know, and you're sort of rude. You call him your old man. We have an old man. His name is Adam. And his sin, we sort of share in it. And as a result, we share in his destiny. We share in his doom. Adam can't save us. The strength, the wit, the willpower, the talents, the abilities of Adam can't pull it off before the great white throne. And so what does the old covenant start with? This is the book of the generations of Adam. You want to know how the New Testament starts? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. New covenant. This is the new book. This is the book that we must be found in. And if your name isn't written in that book, you have no life. The old covenant serves us unto the ends of Jesus Christ. We don't cut it off. When people just carry around a new covenant, they miss the whole meaning of the new covenant because the new covenant is interpreted through the old. It only makes sense by seeing Jesus in the old, leading us to Jesus in the new. Jesus is constantly pointing the way. He creates the heavens and the earth, and then he makes a new creation in his blood. You see, he's the creator, and then he's the recreator, and he is created an opportunity for us to be saved. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke 4. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, when I always think of the word book, I'm always thinking of you know, a perfect bound book, that's like when glue is on the side and they stick a, a, a cover on the side. I, that's not what we were dealing with here. Yet they call it books. Okay? We have books of the Bible. This is the book of Isaiah. So we just need to revisit our mental picture of books. So when books are opened at the great judgment, I'm not exactly sure that they're going to be perfect bound and printed out the same way we're used to here in America. So when there was delivered unto the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And he closed the book. Now, he read something in there. And By the way, I'm not trying to detract from what he read. I'm just wanting to make a point here. And he closed the book. So he reads out of the book of Isaiah, then closes the book. And he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them. Listen to what he says. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. I am the word of God made flesh. I am the living version. Of that whoa what a statement they weren't too happy about it by the way the Lamb's book of life which is the Word of God the living book the living epistle who's the Lamb's book of life that's Jesus he's the Word of God in person he's the Lamb's book of life and so another way of saying this is the Word of God that's what we typically would know it as we also know it as the Bible Holy Scripture The living book, the living epistle. It's the book that lives and moves and has being. It's the the book that has two legs and walks around, has two hands and ministers. And what do we become? When we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ and his spirit enters into us, what do we become? We become the Lamb's book of life. We aren't Jesus, but we have Jesus in us. And we become living epistles so that when people read our life, they actually hear the good news of Jesus. They see his nature. When they hear our words, they say, so that's what God is like. So let's look at the Lamb's Book of Life. There's a lot of names for it. It's the Book of the Living in Psalm 69. The book, but the context is brilliant in Daniel 12. You have to read it. The Book of Life. The book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Talk about an incredible title for a book. That's like one of those old-fashioned titles. It's like a whole paragraph. The book of life from the foundation of the world. The Lamb's book of life. The book of life. So this this is a character in Scripture. The book of life. And this is what is opened at that judgment day. That judgment day, if there isn't a second book... None of us have hope. Hades and hell could give up their dead, and then we stand before that judgment, and what are we found? Before the the books of the law, what are we found? We're found guilty. The deeds done in this body were not sufficient, but the deeds done in Jesus' body, it's called faith, that deed, by it, we will be saved because of his great work. It was his deed. Our job is to believe. And then his deed is what we appeal to on that judgment day. That's our plea. Uh, what's your plea, Eric Lutie? His work, his shed blood, his cross, his righteousness. That's the plea. And that's being found in the book of life. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not. That the spirits are subject unto you. So the disciples have gone out and they've cast out demons, seen some powerful movements of grace. And then Jesus says to them, notwithstanding this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice. Why? Because your names are written in heaven. Now, what, what's your position? In Christ. Where is Christ seated? At the right hand of God. And you're in Christ. It says in Ephesians that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. Our names are written in the book. When you are in Christ, your name is written in Christ, in heavenly places, in heaven. So what are we supposed to rejoice in? Not that we can cast out demons and some authoritative power here on earth, but that our names are written in the book in heaven. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in the book, in Christ Jesus. Standing behind the book and agreeing with the judge, the armies which were in heaven. Now, this is one of my favorite scriptures. Revelation 19. There is a judge. He has crowns upon his head. He has a sword of judgment protruding out of his mouth. It's the word of God, by the way. It's like the first books. It's protruding out of his mouth, and he's coming in judgment. His vesture is dipped in blood. On his thigh is inscribed, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is faithful and true, and he's come to bring judgment. His chariot wheels are furiously turning, and he is going to crush under those wheels anything that stands against him. But where are the saints of God? Where are those that believe in this scene? They are behind him. You see, the saints of God in the day of judgment are with the judge. They are not in front of the judge being trampled. When judgment begins in the house of God, it does not mean that the mighty chariot is trampling through our life, crushing us. What it means is he lifts us up into his chariot and throws us behind him, and then he goes through our life and tramples all the powers of darkness. Judgment begins here. But it's not on us. He's not trampling us. He's rescuing us. He did not come to judge us. He came to save us. But he did come to judge sin. If you have any sin in you, guess what? His chariot is ready to trample it. However, it's not going to trample you. When you come to Jesus Christ, you're whipped up into his chariot. And the power and the fury... The vengeful nature of our God, the jealous nature of our God will not trample you. It will rescue you from yourself. It will rescue you from the powers of darkness and of sin. It will rescue you from the power of the devil. He has come to bring judgment upon the devil. And he did. And now we, in agreement, jump up into his chariot and say, trample down these powers in my soul. And then what do we say? And in the church... And in this world, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And when he comes in fiery judgment on that day, where are we? We're in his chariot. Revelation 19, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God, the Book of Life. And the armies which were in heaven, where are you? And where is Christ? He's in heaven. You are seated with him in heavenly places. The armies that were in heaven Followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Don't mess with that God. You submit to that God. You cry out for mercy unto that God. We recognize that he is all-powerful. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. The fact that we can even stand, the fact that we are given white horses and we are given fine linens and they are clean and pure, is not because of what we have done and that we have stood before those first books and been found spotless. He stood before those first books and was found spotless and he invited us into his work of righteousness. He lived the life that we could not live and he has made a way into that life and we are now hid in Christ Jesus and we no longer fear the judgment of God. We cheer it on. The conspiring of God unto judgment. Now we're going to go back in time. Remember those all those scriptures I said all the way from 1 Kings 16 to 2 Kings chapter 10? Big swath of scripture. And yet it doesn't cover much time. So let's venture back. This title is very important: the conspiring of God unto judgment. You know that God, I know we don't like to think of him being conspiring, but he is. He has a wit and he's thinking things through and he he has an eye on what is taking place and he knows his promises, he knows his law, and he will bring judgment on his adversaries. He will not acquit the wicked. He will bring judgment. There are certain times we look around and go, God isn't judging anyone. How come the wicked are getting away with all of this? They won't. God will not acquit the wicked. So the conspiring of God unto judgment, this is quite the story. God is laying foundation stones in place long before the judgment comes and when the chariot wheels start churning. <clears throat> Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, God was conspiring even under the cross. And they didn't know it. See, the enemies were caught off guard on the day of judgment at the cross, And if they'd known what Jesus was up to, they wouldn't have done what they did. Well, that's very similar to a lot of the things we're going to read here. 1 Kings 16, but Omri, who, by the way, would be worthy of a boo, but Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him. So he was king of Israel, not a good, healthy man. 1 Kings 16, 28, so Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, which is the capital city of uh, the kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem is the kingdom of Judah at this time. It's two separate kingdoms. And Ahab, his son, reigned in his stead. You guys know too much, don't you? 1 Kings 16.30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. You thought Omri was bad. Well, just wait till you get a load of Ahab. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, (laughs) the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went went and served Baal and worshipped him. (laughs) <laughs> so this is still speaking of King Ahab he, And he reared up an altar for Baal In the house of Baal Which he had built in Samaria And Ahab made a grove And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel To anger than all the kings of Israel That were before him This is a dark day And God slows down The movement of scripture And he says This is not going to go unnoticed For all generations to follow. I will demonstrate that I will not acquit the wicked. So God stops for our sake. And this is useful for training in righteousness. For doctrine. And we can learn how to live our lives today by reading this story. It's extraordinary. Introducing the revolutionary. A character that many of you may not have ever heard of. 1 Kings 19. Now remember, we started in 1 Kings 16. The character that I'm going to read about in 1 Kings 19 doesn't even come on to the stage of time in the Bible until 2 Kings chapter 9. This is a prophecy. This is a foretelling of that which will come. And it is being spoken to the prophet Elijah. It says, And the Lord said unto him, Elijah, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comes, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. By the way, who is king over Israel right now? Ahab. And do you know that after Ahab was a king named Ahaziah, and after King Ahaziah was a king named Jehoram, There's still two kings after this, and Elijah is being spoken to by God that he should anoint Jehu king over Israel. Jehu, by the way, at this time, just in a raw guess, is most likely somewhere around 14 to 17 years old. He's a nobody. And he's not even going to be a somebody for quite a long time. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of of Abahelah, Oh, sorry, I actually studied that word this week, and I knew how to say it. humahola, Boy, that's a... <laughs> Shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room, which he did immediately. This is a very interesting thing. So Elijah followed through on part of this, but there was part of it that was reserved as a prophecy that he entrusted to Elisha. It was actually Elisha that carried out this commission. It wasn't yet time. And it, came to, and it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. That's the context of this. Elijah feels like he's the only prophet left. And God says, no, no, I've reserved 7,000. But before he says that, guess what he says? Here's what you need to do. Because everyone that has stood against me will be utterly devastated. My judgment is coming. Get Jehu anointed king over Israel. The revolutionary, you know what his name is? Jehu. Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. Now, at various times in scripture, will say the son of Nimshi. That's because Nimshi was his grandfather. But actually, he is the son of Jehoshaphat. So his name, by the way, Jehu is quite the name. Jehu means Jehovah is he. Himself who exists is another way of saying it with a capital H. Himself, God, who exists. Himself who is. That's why this is a very hard word to say. It's like Jehu. Well, himself who is? Jehovah is is another way you could say it. He is. I am exists is another way of saying it. I am, who is, exists, which means He is, he is. He exists, that exists. I am, is. That's what his name means. I am, is. Jehoshaphat. And Jehovah is judge and avenger. I am, exists, and will judge. This man is born for such a time as this. By the way, my law and my books... Still exist. And you will be held accountable to them. For the I am is. Whoa! The I am doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know in Israel you've forsaken Jehovah. But Jehovah is. That's who comes onto the scene. Anoint Jehovah is to be king. Let him bring judgment on the house of Ahab. 20 years of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From 1 Kings chapter 16 to 2 Kings chapter 9 is a window. And I'm going to say it's somewhere around 20 years. I, I studied it in depth this week to try and get the exact dates. It's between 16 and 20 years. So Ahab gets on the wrong side of the law. The books are open and he's found wanting. However, God is slow to anger and he is quick to supply mercy. Do you know that for 20 years in Israel, there is basically a repent? There's a John the Baptist, by the way, is Elijah. Uh, John the Baptist is linked with Elijah. This is the times of Elijah. John the Baptist is the parallel. And guess who followed? Jehu. The judge follows Elijah. And so, it's an extraordinary thing, but there's 20 years. repent. Repent. Elijah, the witness of God, Mount Carmel, fire coming down from heaven. Before that, three years of no rain, a drought. Is God going to awaken Ahab? Is he going to be stirred? Ahab calls on the prophets, could you fix this? Elijah fixes it, calls down rain from heaven, destroys. There's around 850 prophets of Baal in the grove. Devastates them. And rain returns to Israel. And guess who remains impenitent? Guess who remains hardened in his wickedness? The long drought. The fire from heaven. The return of rain. Mercy from immediate judgment. So as the story goes, next to their nice palace in Jezreel, where Ahab and Jezebel live, there's a vineyard, and it belongs to a man named Naboth. For whatever reason, Ahab really likes this vineyard. And he is fascinated. You could call it lusts after, his neighbor's goods. And he comes to Naboth and says, could I have your vineyard? Uh, you know, I'll do whatever I can to get it. And Naboth says, no, it's the inheritance of my family. I'm not about to forsake this. And so Ahab is distraught, and guess who sees him in his distraught state? But Jezebel. Why, my dear husband, are you so distraught? Oh, there's this is vineyard down the road, and I just really want it, but the guy won't give it to me. You are king of Israel. I will get that vineyard for you, says the wicked woman. <laughs> and she goes out and conspires to have Naboth falsely accused and publicly stoned. Naboth is killed, and she returns with the deed of the vineyard unto Ahab and says, It is yours my dear hubby. God then, and when, when Ahab goes to visit his new vineyard, like it's Christmas morning, going down into his vineyard of the dead man Naboth, guess who shows up on the scene? Elijah. Not exactly what you were looking for in this scene. It sort of ruined your Christmas morning. And what Elijah says is, you're a dead man. You have stood against the righteousness of God and you've killed an innocent man for your own pleasure. Dogs will lick up your blood. And he humbles himself in sackcloth and ash and repents. And God actually says, Not now. We will not judge him now. We will reserve it for his sons. So he even gets mercy and still remains. I know I said he repented, but it wasn't a true repentance, it wasn't proven in his deeds. And as a result, even with mercy from immediate judgment, he still remains the wicked man. Victory in battle over and over again. The prophet will come to him, not Elijah. There was different prophets that would come to him and say, God will give you victory in battle to demonstrate that it is God that saved you. Then they win in battle, and guess who never bends his knee? Ahab. Again and again, God demonstrates himself. And guess who remains impenitent? Does that show the mercy of God or what? You see, God will bring judgment, but what is he bringing first? He is bringing a humble appeal to your soul. He's condescending even to give you one opportunity. But over and over and over again, is he wooing us away from our wickedness because the chariot wheels are churning? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Micaiah, the witness of God. He had a witness in the beginning with Elijah at the very end. Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, different than the father of Jehu. It's very confusing. There's similar names all over the place here in the Old Testament. He comes unto Ahab and says, let's go to battle. Do you have any prophets in your midst that will tell us if we should go or not? And he says, well, uh, I have this one, but he's always saying dark things, always saying things against me. And Jehoshaphat says, I like this guy. Let's bring him in. And before that, Ahab had 400 prophets testify to him a victory in battle. And then this one guy comes in and says, if you go to battle, dear King Ahab, you will be killed. And so Ahab locks him up in the prison, despises the prophecies of Micaiah. He hates it. He doesn't want doom and gloom. He wants bright, cheery flowers and rainbows. And so he, Ahab dresses up in battle so that he will not be noticed. And just an errant arrow flies and pierces him in the heart. And Ahab dies in battle. The four ingredients of destruction. Indifference. Remember the other way I talked about the four ingredients to revolution? Well, that was discontentment. But if you want to fall apart and you want to fall under the chariot wheels, show a little indifference. Don't care. It doesn't matter. Well, your wife just stoned Naboth and he was an an innocent man. I don't care. At least I got my vineyard. Self-justification. I wasn't the one that stoned Ahab. That was my wife. God, you want to deal with me? Deal with her. You know, I'm innocent. I'm just enjoying my new vineyard. Self-justification leads to hardness of heart. Remember the other direction? Discontent leads to conviction, which leads to repentance. Judgment still is coming. Either way you look at it. However, if you respond properly and repent... You are in the chariot when judgment comes and not under its wheel. However, if you have hardness of heart when the judgment comes, you are under the wheel. Jehu, the witness. You know, it just happens to turn out that Jehu was there in Naboth's vineyard as he must have been one of the captains of Ahab's guard when Ahab went down to visit the vineyard. And guess who strolled in? The prophet Elijah. Elijah. Jehu, who must have been around 16 to 18, we're not exactly sure how old he was, was a young buck and witnessed the prophecy of God, the condemnation, over Ahab. He just happened to be there, which is extraordinary. He's the witness to the Naboth incident and the hearing of the word of God unto Ahab. And guess what he also sees? When Ahab is destroyed and they are rinsing his chariot of the blood, he sees dogs come up and lick off the blood off the wheels of the chariot. And he says, Elijah was right. The word of God has been fulfilled. Judgment is coming against the house of Ahab. Jehu, the man for such a time as this. Jehu, the anointed. Listen to this story. It's one of the most extraordinary stories in the Bible. So now, Elijah has ascended into heaven in a chariot of fire. Quite a story. Elisha is now in his room, has his very mantle has a double portion of what Elijah had. He's walking in stride of power and strength. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, by the way, this is about 20 years later, after the original prophecy was given to to Elijah of, of anointing Jehu as king. That seems to have been entrusted to Elisha. So he says to one of the sons of the prophets, we don't even know what the guy's name is. It never even says It says, get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Rimoth-Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander, Jehu said. For which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. So this prophet comes in, says, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu says, for who? For you. And he said, for you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head. So this is in private. Remember, this is a, this is a well, I guess I haven't told you. There's been two kings since Ahab. His son, Azahiah, had a very terrible accident. It's quite the story. God called down fire from heaven a couple times and destroyed those that were attempting to even bring healing and health to Ahaziah to have him recover. Great story. And then, so he died quickly, and then 12 years of ruling for Jehoram. Now Jehoram is the king of Israel, the son of Ahab. And at this time, Jehoram has actually been shot in battle. He is wounded in battle. Is the very same battle, same battlefield that Ahab, his father, had died in. Similar judgment is falling upon his whole house. Now, they've been brought back to Jezreel. I think, no, it's actually Samaria that Jehoram, the king, was brought back to injured. Ahaziah, different Ahaziah, by the way, the king of Judah, has returned with him. They're good buddies. They're right in stride with each other. They're back nursing wounds. Meanwhile, a gap has been opened. For a coup, a revolution to begin. And Elisha sends a prophet into the midst of this kingless battle. And he says, I need you, Jehu. Come here. Comes into the side room. Anoints him king of Israel. Can you do that? I guess if you're God, you can. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. (laughs) What a story. So you imagine if you're Jehu, you're just sort of staring going, what in the world just happened? Some guy dumps oil in your head and declares that you are assigned by God himself to go and bring judgment on the house of Ahab. 2 Kings 9, then Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, is all well? Why did this madman come to you? The prophet's known as a madman, I know how that feels. And he said to them, you know the man in his babble? And they said, a lie? Tell us now. And he said, thus and thus he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And this is a dangerous moment for Jehu because what if they're loyalists to the king? Do you remember what the message to us is? Repent. Turn from the old regime. You know what these guys are getting right here? I am your king. Repent. Turn from your allegiance to Jehoram and the house of Ahab and follow me. I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him, on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king! So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. He's known as Joram and Jehoram. Very confusing. But it's the king, he's the son of Ahab. He's the king right now who's injured and hanging out in Samaria. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth-Gilead, he and all Israel, against Haziel, king of Syria. Jehu, the man of swift obedience. He has been given a commission. Now look how quickly... He goes into action. When those chariot wheels start turning, it will happen fast. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel. For Joram was laid up there. Sorry, I told you he was laid up in Samaria. He was laid up in Jezreel. That's the same place that Jezebel hangs out to. That's her like palace. For Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. So we have Ahaziah, king of Judah, and Joram, or Jehoram, king of Israel, both at the same place. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel and saw the company of Jehu as he came. This is you. You're looking out and you hear the rumbling of the chariot wheels. Judgment is coming. You don't quite know exactly what it is, but you see it coming. And who are you standing with? You're standing with uh, the judged. You're standing with the wicked. Those that have stood against Jehovah. So here's, here's a good moment for our soul. Now a watchman stood in the tower in Jezreel and saw the company of Jehu as he came and, and said, I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? Listen to Jehu's response. Remember what revolution means? It means to turn around. He says, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Who are you standing with today? Are you hanging out in Jezreel with the judged when you come out and say, what is your bidding, O king of kings? What are you after in this earth? He says, turn around. Get in my chariot. Follow in my train. I'm come for judgment. So the watchman reported saying the messenger went to them but is not coming back. (laughs) Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? Listen to Jehu's response. And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Doesn't that sound like the gospel? Is this the living word of God or what in the Old Testament? So the watchman reported saying, He went up to them and is not coming back. And listen to this. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Oh, I love that statement. Then Joram said, Make ready. Remember, this is the injured king. And his chariot was made ready. Chariot against chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu. Good luck, guys! And met him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. The same battle that Ahab died in is the same battle that Joram is injured in. They go back to Jezreel, and where is the scene of judgment? But they just happen to be in the very plot, the very vineyard. So they're on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? Now remember the answer that he gave to the others. He said, Turn around and follow me. You're going to notice there's a very different response to the wicked. So he answered, What peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Then Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery Ahaziah! Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms. And the arrow came out at his heart and he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar his captain, Pick him up and throw him into the tract to the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. And when Ahaziah king of Judah saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagan. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Abelim. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there. Jehu the man of decision. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. Jehu the man of decision. Jesus the man of decision. When you come to Jesus, you better make a choice. Your king has come. Repent, for judgment is coming. Jehu is on his chariot and he's driving it furiously. The judgment is coming. The day of decision is at hand. You choose. Are you with Jehoram? Are you with Ahaziah? Are you with Jezebel? You choose who you stand with. Or are you with Jehu? So guess who sees them coming? Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head. And looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Had Zimri peace who slew his master? And he looked up at the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Who's he talking to? Is he talking to Jezebel? No. He's talking to everyone in the house. Who's on my side? Who? How are we gonna respond? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him. Then they said, then he said to them, Could you imagine these guys show up? We're on your side. You know how dangerous it is to stand against Jezebel? You're siding against the powers of Israel. They stick their head out the window and go, We are. What a moment! So, the, so then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splat. Sorry about this. I didn't, I didn't write this. <laughs> and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot, the wheels of the chariot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. Then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him and said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field and in the plot at Jezreel, so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. Jehu. Jehu, the bringer of judgment. Now Ahab, this is all happening like this. Chariot wheels are a-churning. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons choose the best qualified of your master's son, set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. This is the equivalent of Jesus saying, give your best, muster up all your discipline, all your willpower and try and prove righteousness. I'm coming in judgment. I'm coming unless you're perfectly righteous and can stand up against my furious chariot wheels. You will go under. So what do they say? But they were exceedingly afraid and said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? And he who is in charge of the house, and he who is in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared the sons sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants. We will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. Then he wrote a second letter to them, saying, If you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was, when the letter came to them, that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. By the way, it gets worse than that. I actually cut it out, uh, just because we have kids in the audience. Some of you parents are like, yes, we've had kids this whole time, Eric. (laughs) So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left him, none remaining. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The chariot wheels are churning. It is coming. It may look as if Omri and Ahab and Jezebel have a season where there is no law to judge them by, that there is no higher power and no authority, but a revolution is on its way, and a revolutionary has been assigned the task of destroying the house of Ahab. The house of the old man will be crushed, it will be annihilated and a new house will be established and it will be called the house of God. So Jehu killed all who remained in the house of Ahab and Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left him none remaining. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria. On the way at beth of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, we are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Who did they just ally with? They just allied with the enemy. How does, Ahaz- how does uh, A- Jehu respond? And he said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Betheked, 42 men, and he left none of them. Gulp. Who are you siding with? What journey are you on? Are you siding with the world at any level? Are you looking for favor? You don't know who you're meeting in the road. You're ignorant. You don't understand. But right now, you have been convicted. You have been awakened. The book has been opened, and it's convicted you, and it's exposed the fact that you must repent. There is a chariot coming, and unless you're in that chariot, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. Jehu, the condemner of idolatry, Now it happened as soon as he had made an end of offering, the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them. Let none of them come out. Now, he's created a trap for all those that would follow Baal. I'm not going into the story because it's long and we're already out of time. Go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. (laughs) Jehu, who's with him? Are you with Ahab in his house or are you with Jehu in his house? Are you behind Ahab, hiding in the false security of a wicked king? Or are you behind Jehu, the anointed of Jehovah and the true power of salvation? Jehu, his judgment is furious, but right. Look at God's statement on the matter. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart. That was in God's heart? That was in God's heart! Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Remember Solomon? Solomon built the temple. He's a, he wrote the Proverbs. He's a picture of the king of peace. He's a picture of Jesus in so many ways, but he fell away. So did Jehu. We don't follow the man in the Old Testament. We follow the, what he pictures, what he shows us. He is a schoolmaster, which is leading us to Jehu. God is. God exists, and God will avenge. God will judge. The proclamation. The old man is judged his end is sure. Join the revolution of light. Judgment begins in the house of God. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The chariot wheels are churning. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them, of them be? Be of them that obey not the gospel of God. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Climbing in Jehu's chariot. This is one of the most profound scenes in the Bible. That I've ever read in the context of what we're talking about, I tell you what, I was so deeply moved by this scene. Now, when he departed from there, speaking of Jehu, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechob, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said, Listen to this quote Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? Let me read that again. This is Jehu speaking to a man who is coming out to meet him. Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? Is Jesus asking you that right now? You see, judgment is coming. The chariot is rolling. However, God is saying to you, is your heart right? And is, as my heart is toward your heart, God's heart toward us is right. However, if our heart is not right towards him, we will be trampled. Is our heart right? And Jehonadab answered, it is. Listen to this. And Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up to him into the chariot. Is that profound or what? Where are you? Discontent, convicted, and you see the chariot. And you come strolling out. What is that chariot? It's the cross. It's the first judgment. And you come out to that cross, and Jesus speaks to you. And we say, it is. My heart is contrite. My heart is humble. All I know is that I want to ride with you. And what does he do? He holds out his hand and lifts us into his chariot, his chariot of judgment. Then he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. What's your orientation when you're in the chariot? You witness the zeal. You witness the fury, but you're safe. So they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And where are we? Where are those whose hearts are right? We witness the judgment. We are not trampled under the wheels, but we are behind Jehu. Are we ready for the day of judgment? Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. In the day of Jehu, we will have boldness. Because as he is, so we are in this world. You know how weird this is? You know what Jehu means? He is. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because we ride in the I Am's chariot. So are we in this world. We're in the I Am's chariot. We have boldness at the day of judgment. And we have boldness even when the house of God, our own body, is being judged. Why? Because we are with him in judgment. We are not underneath his chariot wheel. We're in agreement when he turns over the money changers' tables in our temple. And we say, out, right along with them." We are in agreement. We're not in stark terror of the destruction of us. We are witnessing the destruction of our flesh. We are witnessing the destruction of the old man. We are witnessing the purging of sin. We are witnessing the washing of the house of Ahab from our bodies and from the church. Ananias and Sapphira cannot remain Judgment is coming. The wheels of the chariot are churning. A few pertinent questions that we'll finish with. Is your heart towards him the same as his heart towards you? Have you taken his hand and entered his almighty chariot of fire and judgment? Are you participating in the judging of the old house in order to establish his new house? Or are you fighting? Are you the eunuchs that throw out Jezebel? Or are you Jezebel with the painted face saying, I'm fine? Have you dolled yourself up, put a crown upon your head? That's what she did. She's declaring in defiance, I am Queen Bee around here. If you do that in your soul, you already witnessed her end. May that be a lesson to us all. Are you in his judging company, in full agreement with his agenda? Or are you the object of his judgment? Have you painted your face and come to the window feigning that you are justified and clean in your wickedness? Are you willing to join the revolution and toss wicked Jezebel out the window? Are you willing to serve up the 70 heads of Ahab's sons to Jehu and declare him your king? Do you agree with Jehu in his great zeal? Let's pray. Oh, Father. May we tremble and fear in the most positive sense because we serve the Almighty, the perfectly righteous revolutionary, the furious revolutionary, the one who is anointed to bring judgment on the house of the old man. And Father, the old man is crucified. It has been dealt the fatal blow. And Lord, may the work of that great judgment begin to permeate our bodies. May the work of that great cross, that shed blood, purge us of all sin. And may judgment begin in us. May it work fully in us. And may we ride in chariot with you. As you stroll throughout every corner of our lives and of this Israel. And purge it of all that wicked kingdom. And Lord Jesus, may we cry out in full agreement with Jehu. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, world, for the chariot wheels are churning and the great white throne of judgment awaits us all. Go out to meet the cross today and let it swing you up into the back of the chariot of judgment so that you would be with him, clothed in him, found in the book of life so that you would not be thrown into the lake of fire and be devoured by the dogs. Oh, King Jesus, the one who is, we serve you, we love you, we tremble before you, and we go out to meet you today with boldness, knowing that our hearts are humble and contrite, and we are repentant. We don't want to be as Jezebel. We want to be the one whose heart is right. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Lutie, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.e-l-l-e-r-s-l-i-e.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.